Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to our podcast, Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Clara Brenner, who is the co-founder of the Urban Innovation Fund, a VC that provides seed capital and regulatory support to startups and businesses directed at the challenges facing urban dwellers. Clara and I had a wide-ranging discussion about her career, her business, and the startups and technologies in which her firm has invested and which are coming up that really can affect our urban lives from the mundane to the mind-blowing. I hope that you enjoy the conversation. A favor to ask, if you enjoy the episode or Leading Voices generally, please share with your friends and feel free to contact me with feedback, including ideas for guests. We're working hard to curate this podcast to keep presenting leaders and ideas with a wide breadth of perspective on real estate and our urban environments. You can contact me through the website at leadingvoicespodcast.com or email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the episode. Clara Brenner, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Thank you for being here, although here's your office. (laughs) It was an easy commute. It was a very easy commute. I have to put the setting here. We're in a nice office building and maybe a not an old building. We're across from Cafe Zeotrope. That's right. Francis Ford Coppola's initial studio and his restaurant, and it's one of the most gorgeous buildings in San Francisco. So beautiful. Yeah, so congratulations. Clara, with your partner, Julie Lane, Mm -hmm. you're the co-founder of the Urban Innovation Fund, which is a venture capital firm that provides seed capital and regulatory support. I want to come back to the latter part of that phrase to startups creating scalable solutions to the challenges facing urban dwellers. That's right. Cool. And the two of you are also the co-founders and still board members of Tummel, mm-hmm. if I'm saying that right, a startup hub for urban tech. That's right. And I don't know if you consider yourself part of the real estate business, but that the kind of real estate and urban matters will be the focus of our conversation Maybe give the headline before we drill into you about what you do and what this is about and what your business is. Sure. So uh, the Urban Innovation Fund, we're a venture capital firm based in San Francisco. We invest in startups shaping the future of cities. So that could really, you know, it kind of runs the gamut in terms of industry, but all of our investing is at the really early stage. So we write pre-seed and seed stage checks somewhere between, I'd say, 100 and 500K initially into really you know, early stage companies. And then we do often invest over multiple rounds with those businesses as they grow. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you mentioned, a big part of our work is also providing a lot of strategic support to these companies after we invest. So um, a lot of them face regulatory policy or political challenges as they look to scale. Um, And we like to be there to kind of help them think through those issues. Uh Uh-huh. And and is this, talk about the strategic support and why regulation may be the top on your list, at least on your website, as you talk about that. Sure. I mean, these companies are dealing in physical space. Um, and this is something I think the real estate community is really familiar with. Uh, there are many competing interests, um, especially when you're looking to occupy public space, it can be a real challenge. Um, and so we, uh, see our companies facing issues of either directly being regulated or perhaps um, dealing in a space where the regulation isn't clear, like you're seeing the scooters in San Francisco encounter right. uh, recently where there wasn't a specific rule for or against them and the city basically had to take a step back and say, how do we want to treat this new innovation? Mm-hmm. A question about regulation. I'm, I'm curious because you're dealing with 
things that were regulated in a different environment, like Uber was regulated in a different environment because of yellow cabs. Right. And scooters are regulated in a different environment. Are cities, do you find, creatively engaged in, creatively and excitedly and happily engaged in solving these problems? Or is the bureaucracy just kind of scared, don't know how to handle it, and accessing answers too difficult? You know, every city is different, and I think that's the key um, (laughs) for companies to realize. If you're in a transportation space, there are certain cities that will be friendlier than others, certain states that have been more thoughtful, say, for example, about putting in place regulations around autonomous vehicles. Um, Mm -hmm. There are other communities that are really excited about um, construction tech or innovation within the water utility space. And so, you know, every city is different. And, you know, just because you figured out how to operate successfully in San Francisco, say you go across the bridge to Oakland and it's like starting again, it's a different regulatory Mm. environment. It's a different group of actors, different community. And so I think the real key for successful companies in the space is figuring out a scalable way to manage that process of growth. And you're definitely seeing that in terms of the evolution of careers within these companies. You're seeing whole you know, policy arms, um, lobbying arms sort of show up within these you know, big companies like Airbnb and Lyft and WeWork, um, but also small companies as well who realize they need to get this right. Okay, so you say you started your career in real estate. Let's kind of talk about your pathway and how you got here and then discover more deeply what it is you're doing here. So where'd you grow up? How'd you grow up? And how did you, what's your pathway to this place? Sure. Uh, So I grew up in Washington, D.C., a town that's really dominated by two industries, government and real estate. And Mm -hmm. um, I was really interested in both growing up. And when I went to college, I actually wasn't sure which direction I wanted to go into. Uh So I ended up writing my undergrad thesis on sort of the historic relationship between real estate developers and local government in lower Manhattan and how that kind of influenced how the neighborhood developed and why it looks the way it looks. Because I was sort of interested, like, why is the financial district sort of so dead? Certainly it's a lot less dead now, but when I was in college, it was a pretty dead neighborhood other than during business hours, unlike the rest of the island. Um, And... Basically, you know, I was hoping this would kind of help me think through and learn more about both industries and then pick one. Um, And they both seem to have a tremendous influence over the way the community looked, the way the buildings looked, the way, you know, what industries were located there. Ultimately, I decided to go down the the real estate development path because it seemed like um, you were equally influential and you got to have more fun, be more creative and make more money. (laughs) So uh, I ended up moving back to D.C. after after college and, and working for a, a real estate developer. This was in uh, 2007, which is a terrible time to start a career in real estate. Um, uh-huh. But uh, I actually really enjoyed it. Um, the big thing for me really was that I didn't particularly enjoy having a boss. Uh-huh. Um, per your comment earlier, there, there weren't a lot of people that looked like me uh, in my office. Uh-huh. Um, and so I ended up deciding to go back to business school at uh-huh. MIT Sloan with the specific goal of, of starting a real estate development firm. Uh-huh. So let's go back a couple stages. Uh, so I started my career in DC as well yeah. at the intersection of real estate and politics. I was a lobbyist for low-income housing. Awesome. And I spent 20 years in DC and then life, life changed. But um, talk about... What, what you found there and when you were developing in D.C., what kind of company were you with or who were you with to be sure. specific? And then how long did that last and when did you do? 
I, I think I ended up working for four companies in four-ish years. I So I started with a small developer who ended up becoming uh, essentially acquired by Monument Realty, which is a, mm-hmm. a large developer in the area. Um, and then their founders basically parted ways, and I went with one of them to another entity. Uh-huh. And then that was around the time that I decided I, re- I really wanted to go back to business school. So I ended up taking a job at AECOM, um, helping with their sort of procurement and reporting processes just to kind of like use that as a next step to go back to school. And that, that I really enjoyed that, actually. that was a, I learned a lot from that job. And then I went back to school. Uh-huh. And you knew early on that you didn't want to work for someone else? How did, I didn't know that uh-huh. until I got my first job. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, everybody has a different work style. And for me, I really wanted a little bit more autonomy and I, and I had my own vision for the kind of firm that I wanted to run and the kind of work that I wanted to do. Also the kind of people I wanted to work with. And I I did feel very much like oftentimes the only woman in the room. And, you know, I I wanted to start a firm where that wasn't always the case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It took me till I was 50 to figure out I didn't like working for other people. (laughs) Um, And so what did Sloan bring to you? Sloan for me, I went to school because I felt like I needed more credibility around the finance mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I took a lot of accounting classes, a lot of modeling classes, and I, I wanted to learn more about entrepreneurship. You know, how, how does one start a company? Like I didn't even know where to begin um, when I got to school. But while I was there, you know, entrepreneurship is such a huge part of MIT's culture. Uh-huh. Um, and tech innovation is such a huge part of MIT's culture that I really found myself kind of immersed in that space. But ultimately, sort of between business school's two years, and so between my first and second year, um, I, I took a job for the summer, which is what most students do. And I went to go work for Ben and Dan Miller, who were sort of in the real estate community in DC. I thought I was going to work for their real estate development firm, and I was going to like learn from them about what they were working on. They uh-huh. come from a, a family of, of sort of real estate titans, and... Um, when I got there, they basically informed me that, in fact, they had an idea for a real estate tech company. And I, I was surprised at first, but um, I really threw myself into it. And it it was a truly transformative experience. So we ended up developing two platforms, one called Fundrise and one called Popularize. Um, and Fundrise ended up becoming sort of the, the company that rose to the top. They right. are hugely successful now. They essentially... Well, when we started, the idea was to crowdfund dollars from both accredited and non-accredited investors uh-huh. um, to sort of invest collectively in institutional real estate. The idea being, you know, REITs are not really accessible investment vehicles for most human beings, um, but they're, they can be incredibly great investment opportunities. And so how do you sort of democratize access to pools of real estate assets, private real estate. Hey, let me argue with that for a sec. REITs yeah. are pretty accessible. You can buy one over the counter at Schwab tomorrow and they're a hundred bucks or whatever. Sure. But they're not the kind of REITs that I think people want access to where there's a level of excitement, where there's a level of involvement. That type of in- institutional asset is really reserved to sort of ultra high net worths. Fair deal. Um, and what we were looking to do is create a, you know, a really exciting attractive investment vehicle that was more more interesting or at least more diversified than just putting all of your money into mutual funds uh-huh. um and i think they've really they've, they've gone on to raise about 50 million dollars they're right. quite large now i think the best way to describe them is like a, a betterment for real estate assets uh-huh. and they're they were just awesome i i really liked the company but i still i i 
really wanted to start my own company. And so when I went back to school, I was talking to my friend Julie um, about how awesome my summer was. Um, and she had had a sort of similarly great experience working for a company called Revolution Foods, which is based here in California. They're they're essentially a healthy school meal provider. At the time, they were a startup. Now they're huge. I don't know. They do 100 or 200 million in annual revenue. No, they're they're pretty big. Um, but we just really love these companies. And this was like when Lyft was just getting off the ground and Airbnb was just getting off the ground. And we felt like they all had something in common. We found ourselves continually talking about these companies together. Um, and we didn't have the words because they were all in different sectors. They wouldn't describe themselves as social impact companies, but they were all tackling really interesting community challenges. And at the same time, they were scaling in ways that you don't typically see community organizations do. And that kind of took us down the path of doing a lot of sort of research and, and ultimately took us to what we're doing today. So then you graduated MIT. Yeah. And then what did come next? Well, what came next actually was during school, we, we ended up authoring a research study. So I should mention Julie was a political pollster and consultant in a previous life. And mm. she went back to school because she wanted to start her own political consulting firm um, and also sort of got the entrepreneurship or sort of tech bug during her summer position at Rev Foods. We ended up kind of harnessing her brain power to do a study of entrepreneurs from around the country, entrepreneurs we started calling urban innovators. So by that, I mean companies using technology to shape the future of cities for the better. Um, and we we ended up finding that they had just so much in common. Um, you know, regardless of their industry vertical, I think the two big things are one, um, these companies face a lot of challenges raising early stage capital. A lot of them have a physical component. So like for Fundrise, we physically bought a building for our, for our first uh-huh. project. Uh, Rev Foods, you need a physical culinary center. If you're a, a bike share system or a scooter system, you need a fleet of vehicles. Um, or these companies are working in some kind of like a new economy or sharing economy type space, in which case more traditional you know, institutional tech investors just want to see that you have a lot more traction before they're going to take a risk on you. Um, So that's sort of big challenge number one. Big challenge number two is that uh, pretty much across the board, these companies face pretty significant regulatory and political hurdles. Um, So, you know, Fundrise, we were dealing with Reg A+, which was new. Um, If you're that bike share system, you need public space permits. If you're Rev Foods, you're selling into, you know, highly regulated, highly unionized school districts. Um, There's just a certain level to which you have to engage in order to be successful. Um, And as we surveyed the investor landscape, it was pretty clear no one was investing in this space in a a concerted manner, and they definitely were not providing them with good regulatory and political and sort of policy advice, as is, you know, evidenced by the news every day. (laughs) And and that kind of inspired us to to try and start something for ourselves. Mm -hmm. The regulatory part, talking about Julie's background, Mm -hmm. comes to the fore. And so you have the finance side and you have the regulatory side. When I think of a VC, I think of an organization with the business acumen to help someone grow smartly. I've never heard it before said from the aspect of help grow smartly within regulatory hurt, knowing that there's regulatory hurdles as a, as a top line issue. I mean, it, it's something that I think is a real key differentiator and you're seeing companies encounter all the time. I mean, we have companies that um, 
like we were the first investors in Chariot, for example, the commuter shuttle service. Mm-hmm. Um, they were acquired by Ford, I guess, a couple years ago now to serve as the backbone of their smart mobility line. But when they launched, they weren't the only bus startup out there. There were quite a few, and many of them were better funded than Chariot, like Leap Transit, for example, um, was backed by Andreessen Horowitz. Um, and they went under in, in like, I don't know, 30 days, 60 days, because they got a cease and desist letter from the state of California. Uh-huh. Um, and, and many of their competitors found themselves kind of floundering either because they were breaking rules that were easy enough to not break and they did it anyway, or the environment wasn't clear and they just didn't engender a lot of political goodwill that would have made it easier. And certainly Chariot's experience wasn't easy per se, but I think what we've seen time and time again is that, you know, you need all the business fundamentals Mm -hmm. first and foremost. You have to be a good startup. Your technology has to be good. But a real key differentiator and an opportunity to kind of rise above the rest is your savviness when it comes to the way you think about dealing with the political environment, the policy environment. It's interesting because the, of course, we have the example of Uber as the headline of maybe how not to do it or how to do it brutally and get in trouble for it. Sure. So there must be, and there are other examples that you don't hear about as much. So that means probably good if you don't hear about it. Good if you don't hear about it, for sure. Um, but I mean, it's clearly worked for Uber. I We try not to tell our companies what to do, but more encouraging them to at least have a plan. Right. But I think that, you know, unless you have a giant war chest like Uber and you're a first mover in a space, it, you can't be that bull in a china shop anymore, I think municipal officials are much more savvy and aware of the implications of these innovations now. They may not be fast moving and they certainly are are sort of responsive as opposed to proactive most of the time, but they are aware and they're less tolerant of nonsense than they used to be um, because of companies like Uber. And so, you know, I don't think it's possible to be quite so cavalier, let's Mm -hmm. say, as Uber was. Another interesting question, and we have to get back to the story of <laughs> your, your businesses here, but the unintended consequences of many of these innovations are uh, unknowable because they're unintended and sure. they're scary. So two, two examples come to mind. One is I was waiting at a hotel in New York for my Lyft driver, and the cab guy at the stand right there said, you know what you did to me? I was like, what did I do to you? He said, well, I, you know, I financed a taxi license medallion five years ago, and that was going to be my retirement. And I wanted to cry, and I, I still took the lift because it was half his price, sure. and it was on its way, and I didn't want to mess that guy up. But the unintended consequences have re- both regulatory and people issues. Yeah. Then the other one I heard with one, one of your friends, Molly, from, from Airbnb, was the unintended consequence of Airbnb being able to help in disaster relief. Who's a first responder? Well, we can get you a 1,000 beds tomorrow. Here's right. the way to do that. But and unintended consequences. Just talk about that for a second because it's interesting. There are certainly unintended consequences, both positive and negative, for mm-hmm. technology businesses. Um, and first and foremost, I think a, a thoughtful regulatory environment is critical to ensuring that um, we minimize the negatives, which is why, you know, I'm glad there are folks regulating the transportation industry. And certainly it's not perfect, but, you know, I don't think a a sort of libertarian, entirely hands-off approach is appropriate for so many of these innovations, especially in an urban environment, because they have such immediate ramifications. At the same time, I also think 
it speaks to why it's so important for there to be thoughtful investors out there who understand the urban space and understand the regulatory environment, not just to keep these companies out of trouble, but to encourage them to be thoughtful about, you know, oh, you could you could do something like what Airbnb did for the disaster relief. It engenders a tremendous amount of goodwill. It's incredibly motivating for employees. And um, ultimately it's no skin off your nose. Like you should do those types of you should do those types of things. And so having investors, having advisors who who think bigger about city problems and also um, ethics is really important. And, and that's why I'm excited to see so many folks in this space starting slowly, let's say, to um, to be excited about those types of issues. Yeah. Well, they probably come to it as a techie with a cool idea, wanting to scale the last thing they're thinking about is that other side of it. It's just not part of the conversation. And you know, a lot of the people who are thinking about it come from the real estate industry. And I think that's why you're seeing these, you know, uh, heads of public policy, heads of social impact, et cetera, at these companies come from the real estate space, like Molly Turner, for example, Mm -hmm. in, um, at Airbnb, you know, she is very, she's an urban planner by training. And actually we see a lot of urban planners in our space, I should say reformed <laughs> urban planners, <laughs> people who are passionate about these issues, but ultimately in order to achieve the kind of impact I think they're looking to have and influence, let's say, they're joining companies like WeWork and Lyft and Airbnb because they see that those tools can be used for so much good mm-hmm. if if sort of directed that way. So let's come back to what so much good means yeah. and let's get back to your pathway. So you're out of MIT, you're with Julie, what do you do? Um, We took our research to Blackstone, uh, the private equity firm, and we basically pitched them on the idea of creating a showcase investment portfolio based on our research. Uh Um, The idea was to invest in all startups doing good things for our cities while also pursuing market rate returns um, with the goal of kind of educating other investors that they could be doing this too, you know, aligning their investment work a little bit more closely with their values. They, you know, at the same time, this was a time, and I think we're still in a time when a lot of folks are sort of like, I make my money over this hand and with the other hand, I give money away, but, you know, they're totally separate. Um, But we're starting to see some institutional investors, some high net worths uh, sort of finding that unacceptable. They want to make sure that they're aligned. So if you're a police pension fund, you shouldn't be investing in weapons manufacturers. If you're a hospital network, you shouldn't be investing in uh, the oil and gas industry when you're dealing with kids every day coming into your emergency room with airborne asthma related challenges. You know, people want to feel like their their corpuses, their endowments, their treasuries are working in tandem or at least not actively subverting the work of their organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if they're just traditional financial institutions, they have millennials who are working for them who want to feel like they're coming to work every day and doing something not uh, horrendous or at least not net neutral. They want to feel like they're doing something good. And that was our goal. So it was to sort of build a portfolio that showed other people they could do this within the tech space. So we created uh, an investment vehicle and an accelerator called Tummel. We incubated 38 companies out of that entity. So like we were the first investors in Chariot. We were the first investors in Neighborly, which is like a crowd investing platform for municipal bonds, which is pretty awesome. I think they, they most recently raised a $25 million Series A. So they're growing really rapidly as well. 
and yeah, the, the portfolio just did really well in a short period of time. What's the difference between an incubator and an investment vehicle? So I understand that. Uh, and so the so you, can, you can incubate companies, have them work out of your space, give them support um, and not give them any money. But we um, offered companies investment. So we would you know give them free space. We, put, we had a sort of structured curriculum, especially with an emphasis on the regulatory and political challenges. And we also did sort of pre-seed funding investment into these companies which oftentimes accelerators do, but they don't have to. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what we did. And our investments did very, very well in a short period of time. Um, and also we had a lot of very interesting metrics to show about all the good things our companies were doing for cities and also how unique our companies were. So like 76% of the companies we invested in had a woman or person of color on the founding team, which is very, very, very unusual in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't part of our selection process. We weren't actively seeking to create a diverse portfolio. Uh, I think it kind of speaks to some of the positive externalities that come from the fact that both Julie and I are women and also some of the sort of industries that we're interested in. I think people get very motivated and activated by the idea of solving problems that they're experiencing every day, that their neighbors are experiencing, that their parents are experiencing. Um, and I think that gets a, a wider swath of people, perhaps, mm -hmm. this is just conjecture, sort of excited about entrepreneurship or tech entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is that maybe coming, I, we have this debate in my household. I, my wife is a woman in real estate. My daughter is a young woman in real estate. And is, as is my firm in our industry, right? So we think about this all the time. And I'm arguing that the room looks different today than the room looked just in the room. I'm, yeah. So you go to Urban Land Institute meeting, or you go to virtually anything, and it, many more women, many more people of color. It just, to me, looks like United Nations all the time. At the top, it's all, all white guys, though. Yeah. But not all, but mostly. But it is feels like it's changing very naturally, maybe emphasized or in your part of the business. I think emphasized in our part of the business, but also I think real estate is a great career if you want to have a sort of impact on the physical environment around you, which is, I think, something so many people want now. They want to feel like, and they want to see the influence of their work every day. And mm -hmm. if, it, if it's manifested in a physical building or a daycare center or a new highway, you know, that's real intangible and I think very, very exciting. And I think that's certainly motivating to many people. Totally true. So describe, so the incubator, Bader is Tummel <laughs> uh -huh. and Urban. So, so are yeah. they alongside each other from the beginning? No. So, so Tummel so, existed as a showcase. Um, we treated it as a deployed fund. It doesn't do any investing work anymore. Um, we basically manage that investment portfolio. It's not set up to do like follow-on investing or to take board seats. So there's nothing more for Tummel to really do from an investment perspective. So showcase. I haven't heard that word before. Yep. It I, was basically, to, it was there to, to sort of, prove out our research thesis Got it. Um, okay. and now Tummel essentially just we we as a board meet a, a few times a year to manage the portfolio and when assets become available so like Chariot got bought by Ford Motor Company um, we could use that money to support events in the community or research around urban innovation topics so that's really what Tummel is now uh -huh. all of our new investing work comes out of the urban innovation fund so the idea basically was we did all this investing out of Tummel it, wor it worked, you know, we were able to mm -hmm. show that we could build a portfolio that could make money and tackle interesting urban problems. 
And we had a few supporters who came to us and said, great, okay, you convinced us, wonderful, we, we believe you now. Uh, can you direct us to some larger you know, institutional funds where we can start investing actively in the urban space? <laughs> and we said, um, unfortunately, no, they, they don't exist. Um, and they, they were the ones that really encouraged us to launch the Urban Innovation Fund. So a more sustainable long-term company right. where we keep investing in the same types of companies, but we write larger checks now, we take board seats, we... Um, can be involved over multiple rounds. Um, So the idea is just, you know, this is a more sort of sustainable long-term part of the vision of investing in urban companies. Mm -hmm. So talk about your investors, if you can. How much money have you raised? What does that that side of the business look like? And then we'll talk about some of your investments. Sure. So we're a $22.5 million fund. Um, Most of our investors are, are larger institutions. So folks like Prudential Financial, um, Omidyar Network, there's a foundation, Living Cities. Um, there's a large hospital system, one of the largest hospital systems in the U.S. Um, a few large family offices. These are, you know, for the most part, very traditional, you know, financially motivated <laughs> investors. Right. Um, but I think they're all part of this wave that we hear about from them and from others. Of, you know, entities that say, you know, first and foremost, we need market rate returns. But if possible, if we can align those investments with our organizational objectives so much the better um and so that's really i think that we oftentimes describe them as our term in the office is impact curious let's say mm-hmm. um <laughs> you know because first and foremost we're a, we're a market rate fund that's our goal number one is is to make money um but we want to do it in a way that's aligned with our values and our vision for for making our cities a better place and is blackstone still in this so they are not really structured to do micro vc investments <laughs> Uh, they've been a really great partner, though, so they're still on the board of Tummel, and, and they've been great in terms of connecting us with investors for the fund. Uh-huh. I think they have a, a real estate tech investment vehicle of some sort. I may be wrong about that. I don't know, but I would not be surprised. And so you would be under the rubric of impact investment. So they're investing in you as an not just a traditional VC, but a VC that does have a purpose and a mission. I would say some of them care about it. Most of them don't. Um, so we definitely have investors for whom th- that is a key. Like they, they want to be investing in sort of mission-driven funds, and we definitely are one. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have many investors who don't care about it, don't think about it, think that we have a like a differentiated thesis and that we focus on urban problems. But for them, the you know the fact that we document you know the demographics of the founding team or um, you know, the kind of jobs that they create full-time or part-time and what benefits come from those roles, like they don't care. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and we try to be open-minded. I mean, that's the, the point is we have a vision for making money and solving urban problems. If you're just motivated by the making money part, great. Like there's a place for you here. If first and foremost, you care about the urban sort of influence that we're going to have, great. There's a place for you here. If you're uh-huh. interested in both, equally fine. We find we have a real mix of investors. Uh So let's talk a little bit more about that making a difference in social purpose is investing in technologies that advance urban environments in and of itself a social good. And when I think of social good, I want to think particularly in urban environments about people who are economically challenged. That's way mission-oriented. And urban innovation in itself may not be mission-oriented. So kind of talk about that fuzzy place in between that. You know, 
impact is in the eye of the beholder. For you, it might be corporate governance. For me, it might be having women on the board and the oceans. And for somebody else, it's a family office that has nine priorities, which include, you know, carbon emissions and guns and, you know, there's, there's no way to sort of say like, this is impact for sure. And this is not, Uh, we have a vision for what we mean. And we have sort of nine areas where we like to invest. So areas like housing in the built environment, um, energy resources and sustainability, um, transportation and mobility, um, education and workforce. And, you know, we find our companies usually don't self-identify as urban. (laughs) They're Uh usually in one of those sectors. They think of themselves as a transportation company, say, or a construction tech company. And that's fine. It's for us to sort of say your company fits within our vision of mission. That's been interesting to, to kind of explain to people because, you know, you'll talk to somebody who thinks one of our companies is incredibly impactful. And another will say like, because you're not exclusively serving low and moderate income community members, it's absolutely not impactful. And you know, there's nothing I can do about that. We definitely have companies that target low and moderate income community members, but uh, certainly um, that's not you know, exclusively the case for our portfolio. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it's interesting because I think about urban environments and I've said this on the podcast before. I was a suburban person for 20 <laughs> years and as an empty nester became an urban person again. And then also in the work that we do, I love cities, yeah. right? And and one of our very recent podcast guests, John Ram from the city of San Francisco, one of his quotes from the series, which I just loved, is the disruptor is not that people are moving back to the cities. That's the norm. The disruptor was people moved for a little while out of the cities, but the norm over the history of mankind is kind of coming together. Totally. I mean, 81% of Americans now live in and around cities. This is the sort of the reality of things. And for us, what we see is good is investing in businesses that somehow make that process easier for mm-hmm. everyone, for a segment of the population. And, you know, people ask us all the time, like, what does urban mean when you say you invest in urban um and for many people i think urban means smart cities they're thinking transportation like exclusively transportation or maybe transportation and sensor networks and utility management and definitely that's part of our focus but for us when we say urban we really mean startups that are tackling the kinds of problems that mayor's offices across the country really prioritize but haven't necessarily been able to address sufficiently on their own Uh um so certainly, you know, transportation chariots are a really great example of that. Out of our current portfolio, we've invested in 14 companies so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, again, run the gamut in terms of industry vertical companies like Apana, which is a hardware and software solution for large commercial and industrial real estate holders who have big water bills. So like Costco is one of their big customers. So they helped Costco reduce their water use by 23% last year. Um, for some people, that's squarely bang on real, you know, real estate tech is urban. And for others, they're like, I, I don't get it. How is that urban? You know, for us, it, it fits very squarely. Um, we had a company called uh, Bumblebee Spaces that we just invested in. That's essentially a robotics furniture company. Um, they, they'd store uh, your stuff in the ceiling. Uh, it's kind Could, of amazing. <laughs> I saw that on your website. Could, I've never seen the word furniture and the ceiling in the yeah, same sentence. It's, so it's wild. This. It's going to be great. <laughs> if it's one of those things where we we hope that consumers, you know, are ready for something that's out there, but they're truly they're truly amazing. Actually, you can you can go visit a unit right now. Um, you should check out their website. But 
the idea there is really to live where you want to live in cities can be incredibly cost prohibitive or maybe right. you live in a studio but you really need a one bedroom maybe you have a kid and now you need a two bedroom but you really can't afford to move or you know you want to live near your office but how do you make that much more attractive a living environment um and they're trying to do it by elevating all of your crap and putting it in the ceiling they've actually started with workforce housing that's been a big focus for them so they're doing a pilot right now with a um fortune 100 company to do their workforce housing because mm-hmm. the idea is they're trying to attract really great talent they need to provide them housing but no one particularly likes to live in a studio so how do you make a studio experience you know the the iphone of st- studio living um so 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 you move the cat i i lived in japan for a year and i lived in a i lived in the living room of a family yeah but it was also the dining room, yeah. And it was my bedroom, and it's the size of this office, which is about eight by twelve, yeah. Because the bed rolled up and moved into the closet, the table just lifted up against the wall. Nothing went so up that's, to the that's, ceiling. This is like the next gen of that. This is like the next gen Murphy bed. Literally, you could put your bed in the ceiling. You could put your dresser drawers in the ceiling. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah. So again, is that urban for us? It fits very squarely. And you know, how do you make small spaces? How do you make dense living? Um, appealing um, for some that they get it and for others they don't. I mean, on the other end of the spectrum, we invested recently in a company called Milk Stork. Uh-huh. They're a breast milk shipping company and they fit very squarely within our focus on workforce development. Um, so they, they have a direct-to-consumer arm, but they actually sell mostly to large corporates like SAP and Microsoft and Google um, so that these employers can offer this as, a, as an employee health benefit, essentially. You know, a lot of companies have trouble retaining women when they become moms, or maybe those women do come back, but they uh, are not choosing the career paths, let's say, that are most likely to lead to senior promotion because oftentimes those roles involve a lot of travel. Um, And so this is essentially empowering women who are breastfeeding to get more excited about travel, essentially. You can put in your... um, your dates and where you're going through the the web portal. And then this delightful kit is waiting for you. When you arrive, you can pump your breast milk, put it in a little kit, press a button. It, it chills it and overnights at home and it integrates with your health benefits. So you don't have to pay for anything. And they've just been growing like wildfire, like crazy. Um, and we were so excited to invest in them. We first heard about them because so many women we knew were, were using it for their own business travel. Um, and you know, for some that's, you know, not urban. And for some, it very much is because this is, you know, empowering a major driving force of our future workforce, you know, working moms um, to to be successful at what they do. And interestingly, they have a, a random tie into the real estate space in that they've gotten a lot of uh, inbound interest from large real estate, sort of like building owners who want to offer this as an amenity. Um, a lot of these sort of like large office building office orders. buildings. Right. So the idea being like you can, you know, through our centralized portal portal, you can schedule cleaning, you can get snacks, you can also get this service and they'll actually have the kits waiting in the, in the sort mm-hmm. of storage closet or whatever. So they're there. So maybe you're traveling from the New York office to the San Francisco office. There's a kit there for you. So my daughter lives in the country of Kosovo okay. with my brand new granddaughter. Nice. And she had to come home to DC for business a couple weeks ago. And the amount of paraphernalia she had it's to travel crazy. with for this subject. Yeah. And she kept losing her privacy during the, the the experience sure uh, 
because it, there were places that people kept knocking on the door saying, I want to come in, I'm coming in. Yeah. And, but, and then, but she had to schlep this stuff and then keep it frozen. So she bought a cooler to take it back to Kosovo. So many women I know are like literally carrying beer coolers with them <laughs> on business trips. And it's something that, you know, most people don't think about until you are a mom and then it's too late. Um, right. And yeah, so we, we're really excited about them. Yeah, yeah. So I was trying to figure out how that does fit into your theme when I read your website. Yeah. Kind of, I looked at these different companies and I expected more companies that dealt with uh, more obvious parts of what urbanization's about. Sure. It, it does seem that urbanization... The density of people allows the kind of businesses that didn't exist before. With Absolutely. The with technology and density, you can do things that have never been done. Totally. Um, and we see that in, in so many ways. Like we have a company called Udelve, which essentially is a electric autonomous last mile delivery vehicle. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so they focus on delivering on behalf of um, sort of small and medium sized retail partners. So like grocery chains that are looking to compete with the likes of the Amazon slash Whole Foods of the world. Um, And you can't have a fleet of autonomous vehicles doing deliveries unless you have a ton of customers in a a small space. Right. Um, And so it's been really interesting. They actually launched with Draeger's, uh, uh, the sort of grocery chain here in Mm -hmm. California. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been interesting. They've, They've done it a lot of deliveries at this point. And um, yeah, it only works if, if all of your neighbors are getting groceries too. But yeah, I mean, we'll also invest in companies like votes, which is a mobile voting platform that's, uh, built on the blockchain. Uh huh. So the idea is, you know, when you think about what's wrong with voting, you usually think about two things, you know, one, people don't do it. Uh, and two, um, there's some very legitimate concerns about security. And so the idea with the company is if you can empower people to vote on their phones, they're much more likely to do it. And if you can document it on the blockchain, it's really easy to um, monitor the election and also audit it afterwards. And so they, they started actually with town voting. There's a lot of mm-hmm. municipal voting, especially in New England, like participatory budgeting and stuff that happens on a quarterly basis. Um, so that's where they got their start. But they actually recently did the first federal election on the blockchain in partnership with West Virginia, which was really <laughs> cool um, because they have a lot of active duty servicemen and women um, who are overseas and who normally when you vote, vote by mail and their votes basically never get counted, which is super disenfranchising. Um, but, you know, immediately the implications of that are exciting for just, you know, voting in what you think of as the sort of regular November elections. But also think about, for all of you real estate nerds out there, like think about all of the town meetings that, you know, only the crazy cat lady shows up to. But really, if you could activate all of the people, all of the citizens mm-hmm. who ultimately care about the outcome of a specific initiative or rezoning or whatever, um, you know, there's so many opportunities. We think if you can have a trusted platform where people can express their opinion to elected officials, um, you know, I think we will have better outcomes in so many different ways. So a question about that is one of my favorite topics, but, but how do you, how do us urbanists Uh change the conversation in our urban environments so that people are a little less scared of change, particularly scared of change in the built environment, because here in San Francisco is a great example, but lots of California and other places, it's not in my backyard. Right. Either the, the traditional one was low-income housing, but now it's anything. Anything. People are terrified <laughs> of change, but it's going to densify. Right. So maybe it's your voting tool, but are there other tools that you have or you use or you come across that helps change that dynamic? You know, it's hard because when you say people are afraid, it's really 
uh, homeowners are afraid. Uh, the rest of us renters are fine with it. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I think, you know, it's hard that we think that innovations like uh, votes, which empower people to be sort of more participatory or, or neighborly, the crowd investing platform for municipal bonds, which essentially unlocks money to support public mm-hmm. infrastructure projects, are great places to start. But we also get asked all the time, like, when are you going to invest in a company that solves the housing crisis or the homelessness crisis? And, you know, unfortunately, I, I don't think it's going to be a tech innovation that no. drives that change. It's, it's you know, concerted uh, political and policy related change. Mm-hmm. And, this is something we talk about with tech folks all the time, which is like, you can't just bitch about it at a coffee house or, you know, at a party, you have to actually participate. I think there is a, an, a desire to sort of go to the tech sector because it seems easier somehow. Like tech, you know, it'll explode and it'll solve the problem. It's just so massive, the implications of technology, whereas uh, slow and painful political movement is is painful and unpleasant uh, and expensive. So like, why would you want to do it? But I, we try to, tell folks within our portfolio and also just generally people that we meet within the tech community that it's it's a combination. It's both, you know, trying to identify transformative technology mm-hmm. when you can, the Airbnbs, the Ubers, the votes of the world, but also you have to know who your supervisor is and you have to know who's running for mayor and you you have to vote um, because unfortunately, and I find this is some, sometimes surprising for folks in the real estate space, like how politically disengaged the tech community is. They really are. Like we had an event a few years ago where uh, Gavin Newsom, the lieutenant governor, uh, perhaps soon to be governor, um, came to our office to give a talk. And (laughs) we were in a co-working space at the time, maybe 200 other folks were working on their computers. And we went around saying, hey, you know, Gavin Newsom is here. Would you like to come and, you know, meet him and hear what he has to say? And the number of people who just literally said, who is Gavin Newsom (laughs) was shocking to me. It was truly truly appalling um and you know but scolding people and just saying like you're you're not doing it right is i find not a particularly effective thing to do either and so trying to get folks to understand that there are business advantages to knowing who the governor is and understanding the regulatory implications of your business um it's not just like the right thing to do um it is also good business. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been the message that has really resonated with both our portfolio and other folks in the tech community a little bit, let's say. It's a fair deal. Funny story. I was behind uh, Gavin Newsom on an airplane going to Philadelphia before the Democratic convention. And this is a low-tech, high-tech comment, just a funny one. And I was doing my work on my computer and on a legal pad, he was writing the speech he was going to give. And I kept looking over (laughs) his shoulder to see what he was going to say. Was Uh, it good? I wasn't nosy. Yeah. But he was nice. Good. He, he was, he held, it's just funny. The guy's a politician, so it's a fair deal. But he was uh, kind to all the people around him. Yeah. He helped the older people get their luggage up above the seat rack. He's a I great do politician. That too. He's just thoughtful guy. <laughs> and I know that's, a, you know, you get cynical about that, but mm, it's also sincere. So that's great. Yeah, it's a funny world. Um, so I think in the urban environment and in the changes that are occurring, you have winners and losers and yeah. you have income inequality and income inequality is something you can't solve that wouldn't be any part of your mission to sell you'd be nice right. but it just can't be inside the stuff you do you may be able to ameliorate some of those things or make some transitions easier for people through the technologies you have 
or just through your, your work generally. I'm wondering if there are any things you're working on that are next for one of two, not disenfranchised populations, but either kind of low and moderate income families in the urban environment, mm-hmm. or multiple question, or seniors, you know, particularly old folks stuck. Well, I'll just engage. say this. We have not invested in any what's called elder tech yet. Uh-huh. That is a phrase, in fact. Okay. Um, but my co-founder, Julie, is very passionate about the space. And so we see a lot of deals. Uh-huh. Um, we would like very much to do one. I think um, we will at some point. I think especially financial platforms in terms of empowering saving and more diversified investment is a great way, like making retirement um, easier, I think, from a financial perspective, is an area that I think is probably how we will first get involved in the elder tech space, but we'll uh-huh. see. Um, in terms of low... Hey, stick with elder tech for one because yeah. I have an idea for you. Okay. What facilitates people of my age whose parents are in their mid to late 80s and 90s yeah. to deal with their parents? That's a question see, all my friends are We see frustrated. companies like this all the time. They just haven't quite figured it out. Like you see platforms where it's like, we're going to aggregate all of the on-demand services, like the the lifts and the um, home joys and the whatever, you know, so like we can send someone to clean my mom's house. I can someone to pick my mom up to take her to her doctor's appointment. I can send someone to go drop off her, uh, you know, you know, prescription from the pharmacy. So we've seen actually quite a few companies trying to do that. Just none of them has quite, quite figured it out from like a user interface perspective. But we do see those businesses. We see a lot of businesses trying to monitor the elderly for falls, like a lot of motion mm-hmm. detection or actual cameras. Um, you know, there's actually quite a bit. I think people are are thinking about this, um, and we would love to invest more in that space. We just haven't found the right deal yet. So here's a question, because you just use these words, and I'm so curious. This is part of how you do your business. You say, well, I haven't found the one that's quite there yet. But I think in your business, it's someone who's knocking at the door, working it, working it, working it. Yeah. And sometimes what you invest in isn't what it's going to become. Yeah. You invest someone banging at a space who's really smart. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's true. No, that's totally fair, it. especially at the, the pre-seed and seed stage, which is where we are. These yeah. are early stage companies who are just figuring it out. Some of them have paying customers. Some of them don't even have any customers yet. Um and so it certainly is an evolution, and the company that you invest in probably won't be the same company in right. a few years. That said, um, you want a company that seems to be onto something, and we just haven't seen one that seems more onto it than any, any of the other ones, let's say. Huh. But we're we're certainly optimistic and would like to see one. So my friends invest in buildings, right? That's what we do in real estate yeah. business. You're investing in people who are coming up with an idea, banging at the door, and might be onto it probably. Yeah, that sounds about You're right. You're investing in talent, which actually is what might I do for a Might be onto it probably. A, t- a great team that might be onto it probably is probably the best way to describe our investment Might be onto strategy. it probably is your investment strategy. Yeah. With your theme, because right. you bring stuff to their table. Correct. Wow. And how do you assess that? Is this people? Is it ideas? Is it both? Is it the chemistry? Because it's usually a couple people, which right. will get to one of my last questions about your business. But how do you, what, what's your engagement process to get under the sheets for that? I mean, team is really important. And we really like to meet the founding team a few times before we're in a position to make an investment decision. I mean, there are definitely investors who will meet you once at a coffee shop and write you a check, and that's not us. We really do like to spend some time, go to their office, use their product, 
do all of those sort of kicking the tires. If they have customers and even if they're not paying, we really do like to talk to them or potential customers. You know, Milkstork, for example, we had women who were absolutely ecstatic about, you know, the way this company changed the trajectory of their whole lives in terms of not coming back to work at all. And now they did, or they were going to come back, but now they're actually a senior VP because they were able to take that one trip to Cuba. You know, like these, those types of stories are incredibly revealing because you'll also talk to folks like you may have a company that has, you know, pretty good revenue actually for an early stage company. And then you talk to the customers and it's pretty clear they're not going to use it again because the, you know, process to get the funding for that one project took three years, <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, well, okay, then never mind. Um, so that's, that's very revealing as well. And it's also just, we do a lot of research into the space. Like we invest in quite a few sectors. And so it's, I think one of the most fun parts of our jobs is getting to learn about a whole new industry. I bet. And how do you and Julie split this up and what's your partnership look and feel like? Uh, Julie is the best. I'm so lucky that we get to work together. Um, We, I mean, as an early, you know, we're a relatively new firm. We kind of do everything all the time. And we have one associate. We're actually hiring for a second associate now as well. Um, But she tends to do more of the back end. You know, she's the one that does all of the communication with our fund administrator and our lawyer. And I do much more of the public facing, you know, hosting events and speaking at conferences. Um, But we all source deals. We all meet with every company that goes through our diligence process. Um, So it's very much an all hands on deck all the time situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could you do this alone or is it better to have a partner? What's the benefit no, of having a partner? For sure, I, I could not do this alone. I, I think it's it's been great just both from having an emotional support system so you don't have to complain, complain to your significant other when you go home. Yes. You know, just having someone who actually wants to hear, hear you complain because they're complaining too uh-huh. is great. Um, but also, you know, she's just an incredibly thoughtful person and um, it's great to... I just feel like we're very, very aligned in terms of our vision for the business we want to create. And it's um, it's just so motivating to have someone who who you feel really is behind you 100%. You're lucky. It's wonderful. Um, before we wrap up, blow our minds about what's coming. What are some of those like amazing things you are seeing that we, yeah. our listeners, can't quite imagine happening in our world? I mean, autonomy is happening and it's happening in so many different ways, whether it's for delivery or for trucks um, who are moving freight around the country. Um, you know, it's it's happening and it's, it's pretty remarkable how quickly that field has evolved, um, much quicker, I think, than many of us thought it would. Um, we definitely think the, the from our investment strategy, we started by investing in a company like Udell that's moving packages and not people because... From a regulatory perspective, it has very different implications. And from a technology perspective, you know, well, there's so many ethical questions that come with these with these vehicles. Like, okay, I have a car filled with people. It's autonomously going down the street, and it's gonna hit a pedestrian. Right. Do we kill the pedestrian or do we kill the people in the car? You know, that kind of a question is not a question that I personally am prepared to answer. Um, and so, the idea of having you know an autonomous vehicle full of groceries. You know, the answer is immediately, you kill the eggs. Um, (laughs) We'll get more eggs. And um, I think that that, you know, is easier for everybody to kind of wrap their brain around, which is why we're starting to see these autonomous trucks um, who are moving freight, you know, trying to move freight across the country or companies like Udell. I think that's where it will start, but it will not stop there. Um, So certainly autonomy. 
Um, I've been talking a lot with folks about just curb space generally, like the, um, you know, Lyft recently acquired Motivate, um, the, the sort of bike share parent company that runs City Bike in uh-huh. New York and the Ford Go Bike here in San Francisco. Um, I think there's some very interesting activity happening. Like, I don't think they're buying it just because of the, the bicycles. I think there's something, in, and it's not just them. I've been hearing from quite a few companies that are trying to do curb management. I think that's the most valuable space within a city. I don't think you're going to be allowed to just park your cars willy-nilly on any curb moving forward. And so whoever controls that space has a real competitive advantage. And so we've started to hear rumblings of companies that are trying to either do traffic management or pick up and drop off management or some other way to activate the curb that makes it more, let's say, more highly utilized. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a car, but also maybe bikes and scooters and charging and God knows what else. And so I think that's another area where the cities will not look the same in the future. Um, we've been seeing a lot of what's been called femtech. So technology for women, especially, and new parents um, is an area where we see a ton of innovation like Milkstork, for example. I think if I had told my dad about Milkstork a few years ago, he would have just like shook his head and been been like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And now I think everyone understands this is something that, that is good. And we're, we're starting to see more technology specifically focused on new parents, which is Uh pretty cool. Um, and also just finance. We see a lot of alternative finance, including around real estate. So like facilitating co-ownership, co-investment, um, alternative lease to own structures, you know, the traditional mortgage, let's say is, will evolve, but also just general investment vehicles that are available to regular human beings like you and me. It's not just going to be mutual funds moving forward. I think there's a lot of innovation that is going to happen within the consumer technology sort of finance space, which is mm-hmm. pretty cool. Wonderful. So last question, always my last question. Um, you're able to give some advice to a young person getting into the real estate business. Yeah. Or the urban world. Yeah. Uh, what's your advice for someone starting and embarking on their career? I would say think expansively about what real estate or urban means. I think historically it's been if you're an urban planner or you're passionate about real estate development, you go work for one of those firms. But now we're seeing so many of those individuals take on careers at places like Airbnb, for example, where they have a whole policy research team that, you know, analyzes the the urban impact of of their work. You know, that's a place you could go. The WeWorks of the world, I mean, that's a really innovative real estate company or a firm like ours. You know, um, my background is in real estate and and I think it's contributed so much to my ability to do my job. And so I, I would say for young people... Certainly, there's a great opportunity in, you know, very traditional real estate sectors like sales and marketing and and real estate development and architecture and urban planning. Um, But there's also a much wider world out there, I think, than there was even 10 years ago for folks who have expertise in that space. And so um, I would just encourage you to think outside the box. Thank you. Um, Clara, thank you for this conversation. It's been delightful. Appreciate it. Truly delightful for me as well. Thank you. (laughs) I hope that you enjoyed today's episode of Leading Voices. If you like the episode, please rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to comment via our website, leadingvoicespodcast.com, or to me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.